Are you all right? You have a daughter. Yes? What is it? She's at home with the housekeeper. Yes? The housekeeper's just waxed the kitchen floor. Yes? Your daughter's running on the wet kitchen floor. And? She's leaving footprints. Yeah? The housekeeper's annoyed. She has to do that part of the floor over. Really? It's not too late. You can call her and save her. Well, um, I have some work to do, but I'll call her later, okay? Um, hey, how did you get these powers anyway? I don't know. Ed Glosser, Trivial Psychic. During a brief power outage, Ed Glosser's tanning booth experiences a slight malfunction. Forfeiting a darker base, he instead gains the mildly impressive ability to foretell insignificant events of the immediate future. This is his story. Hello. Welcome to the Rotten Horror Picture Show, the horror movie podcast, where we talk about films off the Rotten Tomatoes 200 best horror movies of all time list. My name is Clay, and with me as always is Amanda. How are you doing, Amanda? I'm good. I, I have my collar turned all the way up, and I'm ready to cleave unto my man. <laughs> have you prepared yourself for a real journey <laughs> through uh, hairdos? Yes. <laughs> that you know, I when I was in college, I had a professor, uh, a literature professor, who was really into 2001: A Space Odyssey. Mm. And uh, when I say really into, I mean he and his friend, every time it was playing at the theater, would go and bring all of the different foods that they eat in the movie. Oh, And they would wow. eat it along with the characters in the movie, like including at the very beginning where the monkeys are like eating a, a, a dead animal, they would bring like loose meat. <laughs> loose meat yeah you know just getting back yeah getting back to the ancestors you know the the carnivore yeah you just got some hanging around in your kitchen yeah loose meat yeah so what i'm saying is you next time this plays in the theater or at home uh mm. next time you watch this you should go through a hair transformation along with christopher walken in this movie because it is it is quite a journey i mean as you know i change my hair quite often so mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm down. I'm for it. I used to ha kind of have that haircut anyway. That's true. You kind of did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sticking straight up as though I had stuck a fork in an electrical socket was kind of my look for a couple of years. Yes, yes. Yeah. And of course, we are talking about The Dead Zone from 1983. We're going back into Stephen King land oh, yeah. uh, after... Like we never left. Like we never left. We took We took the entirety of last year to cover the... Uh, second string of Stephen King on Patreon, so if you want to hear more of our coverage and probably get some of the references I, I'm sure we're going to make. Yeah, uh, <laughs> because we're just going to forget it wasn't main thread, uh, main feed right, coverage. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you can find that at patreon.com slash the Penske file. But this is number 115 on our list with an 88% Rotten Tomato score and a 77% audience score. Um, had you seen this before? Uh, yes, approximately one million years ago. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like it was one of the ones, 
I don't know. I feel like maybe maybe it was one of the ones I was allowed to watch when I was fairly young because it's not super violent. No. There's violence, yeah. but it's not like really over the top. But yeah, I, 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 it's been a while. What about you? I didn't see this for... Uh, this was another one from, I believe, from that... I know I know I've mentioned this before but when I when I was first really starting to get into horror movies I found a list online of the uh, uh scariest moments or one of those things like 100 scariest mm. moments and one of the things on that list was the scene where the deputy sheriff kills himself Oh yeah and um <clears throat> so once I saw that I was like okay I need to see this movie and the strange thing about it is I had read I'd never read the book. Have you read, have you read, have you read the book? I have not. No. Um, b- but in high school, I think I had read Cujo, and mm. one of the things in Cujo that's a running theme in Cujo is the character of Frank Dodds, who is the ki- the, the serial killer in this movie that they track down in in one of the mm-hmm. uh, uh, vignettes. Oh <clears throat> shit, huh? And. Um, there is a uh, little bit of trivia says the novel The Dead Zone was released two years before the book Cujo, but the film Cujo was released about two months before The Dead Zone. The book Cujo is a follow up to The Dead Zone and the first of Stephen King's books to make direct references to another. In Cujo, which also takes place in Castle Rock, Frank Dodd has become a kind of boogeyman to Castle Rock's children. It is implied that oh. Dodd's spirit has possessed Cujo. Or at least the force that made Dodd evil has inhabited the dog. And so I I knew Frank Dodd from the book Cujo. And so when I saw this movie to see him show up as this actual this actual character, I uh, I was very surprised. And I, I don't think at that point I had a full understanding of how much crossover there was in Stephen King's mm-hmm. universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was fun. Yeah, I I hadn't realized that I read Cujo a million years ago, but also a million years ago, but even further back than when I saw this movie. So I don't think I ever put that together. That's that's cool. Yeah, and I, I, I saw it the first time I saw this. I really enjoyed it, um, and I've watched it a number of times since. Uh, I, I really enjoy going back to this one. This this one is a lot of fun, and it is, it's a really interesting piece of 80s movie ephemera where you've got Christopher Walken – in his last starring role. This was the last movie that he was the lead actor in. Uh, so far, wow. I should say. <clears throat> and you've got David Cronenberg coming off of Scanners. And I, I, I don't think he's done Videodrome yet. But uh, he. this is sort of like that stretch where he does The Dead Zone and The Fly in here, I think. Mm-hmm. and so, Which is... So it's always weird to see Cronenberg showing up doing like an adapted piece or something for a studio and putting Cronenberg and Walken together is a strange stroke of genius that I wish he had that had happened more than once. Yeah, not 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 to get not to get ahead of ourselves mm-hmm. since we haven't even finished the intro material yet, but uh it's much less weird this movie than I expected yes. it to be. Yes, it could be a lot weirder. <laughs> Definitely yes. could be. But uh, yes, much more Cronenberg and or much more walking. Yes, I mean I don't know. There's this is uh, sure. Yeah, I guess I would agree that yeah. if, if you you could really let him <laughs> off the leash if you wanted to. But there are some yes. moments of brilliance that I'm sure we will talk about. Um, but before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll play you the trailer, and then we will talk about the Dead Zone. 
If the future were in your hands. Tara's screaming. The house is burning. Would you change it? It's not too late. Touch this man's hand and you are in the grip of the dead zone. I've had another episode. Only the imagination of author Stephen King could take you there. Johnny, wait. With a power that alters the future lives of those you love. You want to kill your own son? I want you out of here. I'm scared, Dad. Or of those you fear. I have had a vision that I am going to be president of the United States someday. And nobody, I mean nobody, going to stop me. Is it a power for good or for evil? If God has seen fit bless you with this gift, you should use it. Bless me? You're a devil. Send for me. Who are you? Who sent you? I'm scared, sir. What's happening to me? We're gonna get married. Johnny, don't leave me, please. Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, I can change it. Okay, The Dead Zone, directed by David Cronenberg, written by Jeffrey Baum, based on the novel by Stephen King. This is the first of six Stephen King movies produced by Dino De Laurentiis, which are The Dead Zone, Firestarter, Maximum Overdrive, Silver Bullet, Cat's Eye, and Sometimes They Come Back. Wow, so have we seen all of those except Cat's Eye? Uh... Yes, we have. Yeah. Uh, do we have to watch? We probably should at some point, but not today. <laughs> but but not right now. <clears throat> this movie stars Christopher Walken, Brooke Adams, Herbert Lom, Martin Sheen, and some hard and fast Tom Skerritt, who is, uh, I, he only shows up for like 10 minutes, but I'm always happy to see St- Tom Skerritt and stuff. Amen. Amanda, what happens in the dead zone? When Johnny Smith awakens from a coma caused by a car accident, he finds that years have passed and he now has psychic abilities. Heartbroken that his girlfriend has moved on with her life, Johnny also must contend with his unsettling powers, which allow him to see a person's future with a mere touch. After shaking the hand of an aspiring politician, Greg Stiltson, Johnny sees the danger presented by the candidate's rise and resolves to kill him. Mm-hmm. So that could be called spoilers, the summary. That's true. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess yeah. you don't really know whether or not he su- succeeds. No, oh, fair point. Well, Clay, mm. uh, some things you'll find for your Stephen King bingo card yes. in this movie Very important. include... Very important. Yes. Everybody get your bingo cards out, because here we go. Truck attack. Mm-hmm. Gotta have at least one. Mm-hmm. Ultra-religious mother. Mm-hmm. Yep. Children in mortal peril. Yep. Main, quote-unquote, yep. accents. Mm-hmm. And also... Train tunnels. And also main, mm. quote-unquote. Yeah, yeah, and just main, quote-unquote. Uh, train tunnels. Mm-hmm. Evil civil servants. Mm-hmm. 
and a person whose psychic powers alienate them from society, resulting in their inevitable death. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's quite quite a spread on the Stephen King bingo card this time. Yeah, I'm. You know, as we've done, as we've been doing these Stephen King movies, and as we talk about on our Patreon coverage, uh, you really do start to see trends in the things that he uh, may or may or may not like. And the mm-hmm. the one that's the most surprising to me and the most interesting is the truck thing. Yeah. Because he really does have trucks playing, like large trucks playing a big part in a number of his films, which I don't know if that's a weird bit of premonition on his part. I'm not sure. but uh, I mean, I've always thought it's definitely a... Uh a very interesting coincidence given given what happens to him yeah. later in his life. Maybe he has the shining. <laughs> I'm sure he's gotten that comment repeatedly after getting hit by a van and is probably I, like, well, it didn't help me at all. So I bet that's what every person who every doctor or nurse who saw him in the hospital oh, for the first like God. three weeks he was there said to him. Yeah, like w- once they knew he was going to make it and they they knew they could make jokes, mm-hmm. I'm I'm sure that's the direction it went in. Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, the the truck the truck thing is always surprising from him that like there are so many because that's not what I think about when I think about like a Stephen King trope. Yeah. Is yeah. that like a, a there is a a truck and it is dangerous in some way, but in most of the movies we've covered for him, yep. There's a bad truck. Yeah, I mean, he's got such a you know, he's a child of the 50s, and he's got such a connection to that 50s uh, greaser, drag racer kind of um, uh, mm-hmm. mentality. I don't know if mentality is the right word, but culture. That's the word yeah. I'm looking for. Yeah. I wonder if there's something connected to that. I have no idea. I'm just spitballing. I it's, it, <laughs> it is a strange coincidence that he, he leans on, on large trucks as a point of uh, uh, danger and malice so often. Yeah, and this yeah, one as as he does in this one. This one's a good one too because that that sliding milk truck thing is is a great shot <laughs> where it just crests up over the road and just mm-hmm. continues sliding towards his car. It's very cool. It's a beautiful way to almost die. Yes. Um, but okay, we have the dead zone. A uh, little interesting backstory on this. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis snatched up the rights from Lorimar Pictures and worked with Deborah Hill who he mm. met while working on Halloween 2 to produce this movie. And Deborah Hill actually chose David Cronenberg. Uh, Laurent- oh. De Laurentiis was on board, but he wasn't too happy with Jeffrey Baum's script. And so he called Stephen King to write an adaptation himself. And Cronenberg hated the script. He said it was terrible <laughs> and says it was a it was basically a really ugly, unpleasant script. Jeffrey Baum would add that King, quote, missed the point of his own book. Then Dealer then Dealer wow. rejected a second script by Andre Zalowski of Possession fame, oh. which uh, another another movie we've covered on on our Patreon. If you want to go check that out, eventually returning to Jeffrey Bohm to take another crack at it. Bohm says the ki- that King's script was a dual narrative that follows a serial killer named the Castle Rock Killer, starting after protagonist Johnny Smith gets into an accident that leaves him in a coma for five years. This was the first thing that Bohm threw out deciding that he wanted to follow King's novel in the aspect that he treats Johnny's story as more episodic, getting flashes of his life as he struggles to find the responsible ways to use his newly discovered psychic abilities. The writer approached the script as a triptych, 
and framed it in three acts. One, meeting Johnny, mm. Johnny in his coma and his recovery. Two, finding the Castle Rock killer. And three, trying to stop rising political star Greg Stilson from causing a nuclear holocaust. And that is one of the more interesting things about this movie that I never quite picked up on mm-hmm. because I wasn't really looking for it, is the structure. It is very much a vignette-style structure that is yeah. uh, a little bit different than, than I think you get in most most movies. Yeah, and I, and I think there are some serious pros and cons to that. Sure. I think it allows you to cover a lot of distance, it, like thematically, and, and, and sort of show... Like like that summary kind of said, it shows Johnny in a couple different phases of his life. Like you get to see him as like a happy and normal guy before this accident happens to him. You get to see him trying to come to terms with what he can now do and also his his new disability. Mm-hmm. And then you get to see him kind of come into his his moral responsibility that he feels through his powers so that I, I think that's really effective but i think at the same time there are also drawbacks in 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 terms of it can feel really disjointed i don't think the time jumps are are very clear yeah, each time yeah of like how how far out are we from different things that have happened and i think it also kind of makes it hard to care about the characters because it at least to me it felt very much like i was at a remove from things yeah they it it forces i i I think it's interesting and it's clever because it covers a lot a a larger swath of time that allows you to really start to see johnny kind of um degrade because of Mm. because of what's going what these powers are doing to him and the way that he adjusts Mm. back after with his into his life and everything uh, but what it does force you to do is kind of be a, a, a kind of clever as to how you're going to weave these characters in and out of the story. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think the one character who I, I think that they handle very well is the character of Sarah, because mm-hmm. that she very easily seems like a character that could be dumped from the story once they kind of have their reconciliation uh, <laughs> adulterous sex with a toddler in the next room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they find they find a, a clever way to bring her back by having her and her husband be door to door Stilson supporters. Yeah, and I I like the way she was handled too. Not only just for how they worked her into the story and kind of kept her as a through line mm-hmm. through the whole thing, but I also think there's a different version of this story where the fact that they're not together anymore is much more. I don't know, over over the top or fraught. Like sure. there's a lot more yeah. of like them having fights. You know what I mean? Or like you never really loved me. How could you forget me? Like there's a worse version of that this movie that would focus more on that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And instead, I think the way they handled her was really well done because for her, it has been five years and her life is totally different. She thought he was never going to wake up, so she met someone else. She has moved on from being a teacher. She's married. She's got a child of her own. Like the, the emotion for her is still there, but it's much more muted. And I think that comes across pretty well that like, she still has affection for him, but she's almost, she's almost nostalgic for him. Even once he's awake again. Mm -hmm. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I liked that. I thought that was I thought that was well done. I thought that was a very subtle way to handle it. Yeah, I think there's I think there is another less interesting version where they change the action of the story to be directly following Johnny and Sarah through the whole mm-hmm. story and like ultimately whatever the climax is involves Johnny saving directly saving her or something you know lame like that right or saving saving her her son or something like that yeah instead instead the son gets used as a baby shield which you don't see very often <laughs> and that's a real baby yeah <laughs> like, like i rewatched that scene tonight and was just like pausing it and skipping back 10 seconds to try and see if there's a moment where it cuts real quick and they swap out like a fake baby mm-hmm. nope martin sheen is swinging a real crying baby around <laughs> <laughs> on stage screaming just like michael jackson <sighs> Don't go there, Clay. <laughs> it's um, inappropriate. <laughs> uh, he, that kid's an adult now. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think it's really clever bringing her back in the way they do because once you get off of that story and into the second vignette, it really sort of... I think there's a... a I would say the second vignette probably suffers the most because in that one... You're kind of, well. I guess let's depends what we're calling the second vignette because if the second vignette I- includes the saving of the kid from falling through the ice, I feel like that's where you're kind of starting to wonder. Okay, what is the narrative drive of this movie? Like, what is this moving towards? Mm. I think there's, you know, they could have done an entire movie that's just him solving the Castle Rock killer story. Yeah. Yeah. Which sounds closer to maybe what King had written as his script. Mm-hmm. And so once you have him do that and then he goes into saving the kid from falling through the ice, um, there's not quite this narrative flow at at this point until Stilson comes back, until Sarah comes back and you see, oh, okay. All right, these this Stilson character is is coming in direct conflict with Johnny and he has connection to her to him through Sarah and I I I think I think it's it's a it's a fun it's a fun structure because mm-hmm. it does let you do a bunch of stuff and then it kind of pulls you back in and be like okay this is what the whole this is what the actual story is Yeah and I and I do think they do a decent job of seeding some stuff early on mm-hmm. um Obviously not as early as, you know, Johnny is a teacher and, and all that. I mean, I guess that, that kind of establishes him and Sarah. But pretty quickly, once he's awake again, you start seeing things about Stilson in the background before you ever meet him. Yeah. Like, there are there are posters and, and campaign billboards and people talking about him on the radio really early on. I think right when he's kind of waking back up from his coma, there's maybe something on the radio that's like... Right, yeah. A newcomer on the scene, Greg Stilson, is neck and neck in the polls or, or something like that. Um, structurally, yeah, I so, of course, me being me, the Castle Rock killer portion is my favorite portion of the movie. Mm, it's very, it's really good. It's, it's, a, lo- it's, it's a lot of fun. I think it's really yeah. good. I actually kind of want to see the version of the movie that's mostly just him hunting down the killer mm-hmm. because I think you you could have had some fun with that, but I mean, I also recently rewatched that X Files episode. That's essentially that plot. Um, 
I I think this the sequence where he's a, a private tutor is definitely the weakest yeah. for the reasons you said, where at that point you've kind of come unmoored in the bigger picture of the, of of the the characters and their relationships. And I I don't know I just never felt like there were real stakes like in that mm. I, I guess because you never saw the kid like he never even like gears up for hockey like he right. doesn't even yes. put ice skates on he's just like no I'm not doing that. yeah Johnny is very effective well I mean when someone waltzes in to your living room and delivers arguably the greatest single line reading in the history of film the ice is gonna break. <laughs> I can understand why you would believe them right away and not want to suit up. Well, yeah, and and I think, you know, it's supposed to be representative of these this like real connection that he and 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 this and this kid have developed. That there's like a respect and a trust there between him and the kid, even if there's not between him and the dad. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that section is it's really kind of there to seed out what's coming next, right? Because the dad is involved with Stilson and it's the first um, the first interaction Johnny has with him. And they do that great bit where mm-hmm. he goes to shake his hand, but Stilson puts a big button into his hand so they don't mm-hmm. touch skin to skin so yeah. he can't get a vision. <laughs> right, because everybody knows. And, and that, that's something I don't know if this movie quite emphasizes enough. That everybody knows who Johnny is, right? Yes, to the point like, to the point where he has sort of secluded himself away, mm-hmm. um, and is just trying to live his life, hardly ever leaving the house. Yeah, yeah, he's essentially become agoraphobic, and and he's trying to figure out how to stay off people's radar because yeah. he has become famous, at least tabloid famous. Yeah, I've noticed people. The people in this movie really, um, they they don't really question him that much once once he starts doing his thing. <laughs> like, there's that one press conference where that mm-hmm. one uh, uh, jerky news guy is is trying to to catch him in a lie or whatever. But then after mm-hmm. that, it's pretty much pretty much everybody's on board. Scarrett shows up and asks him for help with the. Uh, with the, the the Castle Rock killer case, uh, even mm. the dad I think is aware of who he is and what he can do and what he has done. So yeah, he, it's it's weird that everyone's kind of like, oh yeah, that's the guy who can see the future. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I I think part of it is that you know, in the beginning when he has woken up from his coma and he touches the nurse and he rescues her daughter mm. because he can see the fire that's happening, and then. When Tom Tom's Tom Skerritt, who's Sheriff Bannerman, I think. Yes, I believe so. Um, when he comes to Johnny, which is a thing that police departments will do, is they will consult psychics if they're really stumped on cases. Mm-hmm. So it's not totally out of the realm of reality that that you know law enforcement would go to somebody purporting to be psychic. But I think in this world, once he's he's saved the nurse's daughter, and then he's caught the castle rock killer and so he's kind of two for two like Mm. if you're gonna believe in a psychic then i I think he's a good one to to say oh maybe this one's legit yeah and you get that great great bit too when um i think it's the doctor comes to visit him and is Mm -hmm. asking him 
you know, to come back to the to the institute or whatever, and he shows him the closet full of letters that he gets mm-hmm. for people asking him basically about anything in their lives that needs uh, uh, a fixing or whatever. I really like that bit, mm-hmm. and I think <clears throat> I think one of the 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 best things about casting Walken here is that he does have this detached creepiness that mm-hmm. that also breeds pathos because i do feel bad for him uh even though he is a very strange character and a very strange performance yeah and i and i think like you're saying his his strangeness makes sense yeah. because he's he's kind of even in the beginning when he's supposed to be like young and carefree or whatever he's kind of a weird dude he's just like awkward and kind of kind of dorky mm-hmm. And then after the accident in the coma, he's lost a chunk of his life. He's still physically not well. Like, he recovers, but he's never 100% ever again. He always needs the cane. He, he's exhausted a lot. And now this weird ability has come to him. And, and this ability also seems to be draining him of his life force mm. in a way. So having him be having it be Christopher Walken who can who can play kind of detached and and kind of just weird and out there and then have these big swings of emotion that seem to kind of come out of left field a little bit at times and then go back into stillness I think is 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 good casting I like it. Yeah, I feel like I feel like the only other person I could I could see playing this part in a similar way is someone like Michael Shannon. Who has that mm-hmm. same kind of weirdness, but is a great enough actor to make you f- feel for the character, even as weird and as big as he might be going in some some places. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I wonder who else was in the running to be cast as Johnny. Do you have apparently, any tidbits about that, or is it just a mis- mystery? Apparently, uh, Stephen King. It's either Stephen King or Dino De Laurentiis, I can't remember which, wanted Bill Murray. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think he quite has would, would be able to, to do it. And uh, Cronenberg actually wanted the guy who plays Frank Dodd to play him. But uh, oh. uh, De Laurentiis said they needed someone who was more of a name. <clears throat> yeah, I think that guy would have been fine. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't really know him uh, uh, as enough of his na- as as an actor to really make a call on it, but he seems weird enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what do you think <laughs> of? That's all that matters. What do you think of Johnny as a character? You know, you said we we see him at the beginning and he's a little bit more normal. Apparently, his curriculum for his English class apparently consists <laughs> entirely of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven because it's the only thing we see him teaching. Yeah, sort of like <laughs> early American Gothic literature. Yeah, because the other thing he makes reference to is uh, Sleepy Hollow, right? Yes, which is is hilarious, fun and ironic. Um, But you know, (laughs) we get to him. The movie moves real fast. He's in a coma within ten minutes of the start of the movie. Mm Hmm. And uh, yeah, how do you feel about him in general? I, you know, it's it's funny. At first, I kind of had a tough time. Uh understanding him post coma i would say like Mm -hmm. like in his early recovery period i kept thinking like 
if it were me, I feel like I would have more of a visceral emotional reaction to some of this stuff. And he seems kind of blank at times. But then I think as time went on and you do get to see him react, like after he's been dealing with his new reality for a while and things are sort of starting to sink in that like, this is your life now. Um, There's that great moment when the sheriff does come to ask him for help. And he kind of says, you know, if if God gave you this gift, I think this is a good way to use it. Mm. And Walken does the whole monologue of, you think this is a gift? Do you know what God did for me? He threw an 18-wheel truck at me. Yeah. And he, he kind of has his, his big tantrum moment, and it was worth it, actually. I liked it, like, having to wait for it and have it hit then rather than right after he'd woken up. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess it kind of needed a minute to get used to him. Mm. But once I did, I sort of was like... I don't know. I was on. I was on board after that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think it's a good use of the uh, religious family structure in this movie too, because they don't like the, the mother. Johnny's mother is a sort of cultural religious mother. Yeah, traditional Stephen King hyper religious <laughs> mother. But it does add this interesting dynamic to the whole thing because after the mother, when the mother dies, and it's only the dad left. There is this kind of discussion about whether or not what he has is a gift from God and 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 how he should use it, and it, it, so it's that the religious element, while not beating you over the head with the fact that he comes from a religious family, it does add to the layers of not really knowing what's going on or what this is for or why he has it or what he should be using it for. Yeah, and, and I, I do like the sort of way the religiosity of his family is conveyed even after his mother is gone. Mm. There are a couple times where he's like coming or going from the house and there is a sort of a placard or a sign on the wall that says, you know, something about, you know, the Lord. And, and I, I didn't catch all of it. I don't remember what it was, but it's worked into the decor of the set around the house when he's at his father's house before he moves away to try and kind of hide. And I I like that as a more subtle reminder that this is a man who's been raised some flavor of Christian. Right. Um, And therefore he's been taught that things happen for a reason and that God puts you through trials to see you succeed and, and all of that kind of stuff. And that there's a plan. And so in the back of his head the whole time, he's got to be thinking, well, why? Like, why me? Why would this happen to me? Why would God do this to me? And so he's having not only a crisis of of everything else in his life, but also a crisis of faith. Yeah. And I I found myself wondering, too, whether or not... Because we don't meet his parents before he, he has his accident. So I did find mm-hmm. myself wondering if maybe his mother's religious mania was a result of his accident. And maybe she wasn't necessarily that far into it beforehand. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think 
given the time period this is supposed to be and the geographic location, they're probably going to church. Oh, sure. Yeah. Even even beforehand. Yeah. So it's not, you know, I, I don't think she would have, and I don't think you're saying this, but I don't think she would have gone from atheist to right. serious believer. But yeah, I think it's entirely possible that she had sort of a normal or more average amount of religious belief and then needed it more once her son was in a coma right yeah yeah and i think it that element also adds to they, they do a nice job of of dropping a couple things in to make you wonder about what all of this is and what it means the doctor i think it's the doctor who says uh you're in possession of a very old human ability uh, uh or sorry a very new human ability and then he pauses and says or a very old one which I think is a really great line to make you kind of go like, oh, yeah, all right. So, yeah, what the hell is this? Is it is it a brand new mutation or is this something that he's tapping into part of the, the collective unconsciousness or something like that? It's, it's, a, it's a, good, a good way to, to keep things vague and interesting uh, without drawing too much attention to needing to explain mm-hmm. what's going on. Yeah, and and I I liked the exchange with the doctor too, where he says your mother is alive, and the doctor tries to call her but can't speak to her. And when he tells Johnny that, and Johnny says, "Well, why couldn't you talk to her?" and the doctor just says, "It because it wasn't supposed to happen." Right. And so there is this kind of over thematic overcast all the time about is fate. A real thing and if it is are we meant to be able to affect it mm. or is it something that we're supposed to just accept and live with and clearly i think johnny comes down on the side of no <laughs> we're not just supposed to accept it if i can save a child from a burning house or a kid from drowning in a lake or i can stop somebody who's gonna murder millions of people mm. i'm i'm gonna do it yeah well you know i that brings up the uh the conversation he has with the doctor towards the end where mm-hmm. he asks him if he could go back in time and kill hitler before he invaded poland would he do it and the doctor's like well yeah of course i would yeah and i think <laughs> yeah, he's like I'd, I'd have to yeah and i think that conversation in this movie is the most interest one of the more interesting versions of that conversation i've heard because even though the doctor answers in a very affirmative way. It's like, well, yes, of course I would kill Hitler. The question isn't, would you kill Hitler? The question is, if you thought you were dealing with Hitler, would you believe yourself enough to murder this person? You know, because like there's with what he's going to do, there is obviously he has these powers and they've proven to be true or whatever. But I mean, he's about to commit murder. He has to be really, really sure that what he is doing is acting on the right impulse. And it's easy to say, would you go back and kill him? So, yeah, of course, because everybody knows what Hitler did. But if if you're in the situation where you don't actually really know what this guy may or may not do, then you you really have to wrestle with this idea of, am I going to take this chance and believe the vision that I got that this guy is going to massacre millions of people. Right. And, and, and not only are you dealing with your own, you know, he, he experiences his power and his visions firsthand. So I think it's easier for him to have faith 
in what he's seeing, but you also have to remember that no one around you knows that this person is going to become a genocidal maniac. Right. So the question is less, would you go back and kill Hitler? And it's, would you go back and kill some teenager named Adolf who lived in Germany in like the 1920s? Right. Yeah. Who just, you know, was like son of a nobody kind of floating around, just hanging out. Yeah. It's more, would you go kill that guy? Yeah, it's more like, <laughs> it's more like if you went back in time with the intention to kill Hitler but you didn't do mm-hmm. all of your research as to where he was at the time. So you find the yeah. first person named Adolf and you go, I got I mean, I either take the shot and hope right. I pick the right one or I don't. You know? Right. You kind of sidle up to him and say, hey, you're Adolf, right? Are you Adolf Hitler? Is that? <laughs> Haven't really too young to grow a mustache. I see. Oh, that, does, yeah. that doesn't help. <laughs> You're just you're just wearing a normal shirt and pants, no no uniform, no no boots, no oh okay. <laughs> Could you point up into that tree for me? Use your whole arm. Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe that, like that. Yeah. You are you a <laughs> middling painter by any chance? Um speaking of World War Two, mm-hmm. I always oh, mid- forget. I thought you were speaking of middling painters. Well, yeah. Why not? Let's let's put some people on blast. Thomas Kincaid. <laughs> Fuck you. This this is an art criticism podcast yeah, now. Painter of light, my ass. I've heard some great stories about that guy um, that involve public urination at Disneyland, <laughs> but I oh. I won't go into those here. Um, All right. No, I every time I watch this, I forget that there is this movie's like fairly. I don't want to say it's cheap. I don't mean that in a bad way, but like there's not a mm-hmm. not a lot of huge set pieces that re- that you couldn't that require like massive set builds and stuff like this. Except there's a huge World War II sequence in the middle of it. Yes. Which I always yes. forget about. Yeah, and, and 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 you know, this is this wasn't exactly a Hollywood blockbuster with the the most enormous, you know, James Cameron-sized budget. Right. So I think they do a pretty good job with what they have. Yeah, I think so too. I think it looks great. I'm always I, I was surprised how long it was because that always seems like the kind mm-hmm. of thing where it's like, all right, let's get in, we'll get out, do a couple World War Twos, a couple, shoot a couple of Nazis, put the kid on the truck, get out, Bing, Bing, Bang, Boom. But they stick around for a couple minutes, just playing out this World War Two battle scene in the middle of this yeah. uh, quiet. Uh, internal movie about fate and and uh, you know the the, the wor- inner workings of the human mind. Yeah, and I, I going back to like the structure of this movie. I think that the Johnny's visions, I really enjoy them. I, I think they're really interesting, mm. but I do think that they actually at times make the structure work against the film because you are bouncing around so much in time and you're getting flashes of these characters that you never really meet. You kind of just see them in this one moment and then maybe they die or maybe it was a decade ago or something. It just makes it, again, it kind of disrupts the flow and I think is another way in which the structure is really interesting and the structure can sometimes work against itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I think the, the visions are great. Like the first one where the room is on fire is awesome. That one is really, really cool. Oh, yeah. Where he's in the bed and then he wakes, He all of a sudden he's in the burning room. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, because you get, he's sort of just having these like quick interactions with people in a way that I, mm-hmm. I don't mind that not all of them end up being crucial to a larger plot or anything like I did. I don't know if sure. I really need to know more about the girl who doesn't burn up in her bed bedroom, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Um, and I, I, I like that they do save that stuff for the characters that come later, uh, specifically Stilson, because by the time I would say the big difference is, <laughs> By the time we get to Stilson and him shaking hands with Stilson, mm-hmm. they've done enough to let you know that it goes without saying that this guy's a piece of shit. Right, right. Like you don't, you don't need to just trust Johnny and his power to know that this guy is not a good person. Yeah, like we've you had know, other characters talk about how he's not a good person. We've seen evidence of him. Going and threatening journalists. Like, we we know he's bad. But, you know, I think there is another version of this movie, maybe, that kind of leans more on the Would You Kill Hitler thing we were talking about a minute ago. Where maybe you don't know anything mm. else about Stilson other than what is viewed from the outside. So when he does get this vision, yeah, you, f- you find yourself thinking like, well, I don't know. what What is the deal here? Is this guy this bad he seemed johnny seems to have been right on all these other things Mm. um yeah yeah i think i think that's that's an interesting that's an interesting angle that they could have come at things with is is making a little a little more ambiguous about is johnny actually seeing the future mm. or is johnny picking up on some other sorts of vibrations in the world or possibilities rather than definite outcomes if if something doesn't something drastic doesn't happen yeah where you could add some more ambiguity in there about like wait is this the right thing yeah because in this movie it feels pretty clear at least to me that he's doing the right thing yeah you know i i remember the first time i saw this i thought that they were laying it on a little too thick with martin sheen like he's so (laughs) comically (laughs) evil in this (laughs) That I found it difficult to believe uh, in some oh, some no. parts, and then I read the book where Stilson is like a thousand times worse than he is in the oh, movie. Oh, really? Because like, you're getting you're getting his internal monologue a lot in the book, and like the oh. first the first scene with him is like some internal monologue where he's talking about how much he wishes he could gut this person or like they he, <sighs> Stephen King goes out of his way to tell you immediately that this guy is awful. Yeah, yeah, that this is the villain. Yeah. This is the bad guy. And I guess, you know, I guess the flip side is, right, um, if you're going to have the payoff be that this is a guy who gets elected president and then has some sort of vision from God that it's he's meant to set off the nuclear war, it probably tracks more for you to set up this guy as already being on the path to crazy town 
Yeah. You know, I, I yeah. do I do think there is a way you could do it where the, the ambiguity is a bit more fun and, and, a, and, and makes you a little bit more tense. But I think probably for the purposes of this story, Johnny Johnny needs a Johnny needs a win, right? He needs a he needs like a righteous win <laughs> at the end to make yeah. to make this all worth it. Yeah, and and I think the point of this story is that it's it's not to make us second guess Johnny. It's not to sort of ask the question of is Johnny doing the right thing? Is Johnny a good guy? I think the emphasis is more that supposed to be that we know he's a good person right. and that we know he's he's trying to do the right thing. And that that means for him giving up any chance at a life. Yeah. I, I think one of the saddest moments in this movie and one of the most poignant is when Sarah comes to visit with her baby and he's just kind of sitting with them and he's, he's, he's hanging out with her and her son. And it's sort of like he gets for a little while to pretend that he gets to have the family yeah. and the life that he thought he was going to have. Yeah. And I think, I think Christopher Walken does a great job of not overplaying it, but you can tell through the whole thing that he's very melancholy. Yeah. I, I really love that scene, especially when the dad yeah. comes home too and kind of sees, mm-hmm them all he's got everybody there and he's he's having this moment of of the 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 future that he could have had exactly yeah it's a it's a really great bit and yeah they don't they don't oversell it you know like there's no i think in a worse movie they verbalize that and have him say Mm -hmm. something like you know for just a moment i saw what maybe i could have you know yeah we get it right he could have been my son Yeah, I'm glad that they don't. I think that I think the images really speak for themselves. And I also like I think the dad coming in too is played so well because he he kind of comes in and he kind of like gives a side eye to what's going on here. And like the the dad kind of <laughs> uh-huh. takes it in a bit quicker and in, in on, on a different level. And I think Johnny even realizes what's going on. You know, right? And the irony is that they had just been talking. I think I think at that scene they're they're talking about the dad before he comes home, and they say, "Oh, he's over at, you know, Mrs. Sullivan's, and oh, yes, the, the yeah. widow who lives down the street. Apparently, she needs all this help making bookcases." <laughs> <laughs> and so they're kind of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge at each other about the dad. And then the dad comes home and takes one look at them and is immediately like, "All mm-hmm. right." <laughs> it does make me think, though, because. <laughs> You know, you were saying it's hard to tell how much time has passed in this. How much time do you think has passed? Because so we're within the stretch of like an election cycle, right? Because mm-hmm. Stilson is actively campaigning at the beginning of the movie and actively campaign. It looks like it's getting down to vote the vote day by the end of the movie. And mm-hmm. it's always winter. It never never gets warm. Yeah. Yep. Um and so Christmas happens. Christmas happens, and so what I'm what I'm getting at is, how long do you think Johnny's dad waits after his wife dies before he starts going yeah. over to the widow's house? <laughs> not long, apparently. Apparently. Yeah, apparently not. I mean, even if he was campaigning and it was October, and you want to say, well, this is Northern Maine and it gets cold in October, fine, but it's got to only be like February when this movie ends. Yeah. Yeah. That dad, man. 
It's waiting for a waiting for the old ball friend. and chain to kick it. <laughs> so he could go out and kick it. So Martin Sheen in this movie mm. is like delightfully loathsome. Oh yeah. He's so over the top. He's so insane. He's so intense. I will just say, living in America in the time we live in, there are a lot more um, uh, strong personalities <laughs> on the political scene. And we'll just put it like that. So I, I wonder how much of watching this movie now and finding him like a believable politician is just reflective of the time we live in. Like, yeah. If you watched this when it came out in the 80s, were you just like, wow, they really went over the top with this uh, this senator character? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the other things that they do that's really smart is they don't give him a political affiliation. It, he's, oh, yeah, he's they kind don't of even a, give him a platform. Yeah, really. Yeah, he's yeah. just He just wears hard hats. That's basically his whole platform. Yeah, and he yells at people. Yeah. He yells at people for coming out to his rallies saying, what are you, unemployed? Yeah. Yeah. He's basically, he's more, he's like a Veep politician where it's, yes. that you have a vague sense of where he might be, but it probably varies depending on your own political leaning, you know? Yeah. And I think the point is that ultimately it doesn't matter. Like, right. He, he could be standing on that stage saying we should have closed borders or he could be standing on that stage saying Medicare for all. Right. And it, absolutely. it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's he's still an evil person. He's still a bad person. Who's going to do an, a, a, an atrocious thing. Yeah. His only real platform is one that's pretty, uh, uh pretty, uh, bipartisan, which is jobs. Essentially. That's basically the thing yes. he gets into. <laughs> And it's not enough. Jobs and also tall men in leather duster jackets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, is this is is this bodyguard just your bodyguard? You guys seem awfully close. Mm. There's no no women around you ever, huh? No, no, hmm. not really. There's well, there's, there's really only like one woman in the whole movie, frankly. But um, that's, that's true. Yeah, I I found him. Uh, he is very over the top. But there, there. I, I would be lying if there weren't events in the last handful of years that made me immediately think of him, mm-hmm. uh, for reasons that we don't have to get into here. But yeah. um, I, I have man. When I think of Martin Sheen, I think of Apocalypse Now, and mm. I think of stuff from pro, maybe the West Wing. I, I didn't really watch the. Ironically enough, he end up he ends up as the president eventually in the West Wing. Um, I didn't, I didn't watch the West Wing, but you know, I got the gist of it. Yeah. Uh, and more of his older stuff, man, the more younger Martin Sheen stuff I see, the more it seems like he was just really good at being creepy as hell yeah. because, you know, there's this movie that I, I had never heard of that I saw on, uh, the last drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs, uh, last mm. season, I think called the little girl who lives down the lane. It's, oh, yeah. it's, uh, have you seen it? Uh, I have not, but I remember seeing like scrolling through Joe Bob and seeing yeah. that, that that was on there. Yeah. And it's, I think it's Jodie Foster's first movie. She's like 13 or something. Oh, and, yes. uh, it's one of Martin Sheen's early movies as well. And he is so scummy in that movie in like a really specific kind of way, uh, mm. where he's, 
he's he's scummy with a smile if that makes sense like he's really good mm-hmm. at that and i just saw him we just saw him on an episode of columbo not so long too long ago where he was doing the same thing <laughs> I love that you guys are watching columbo i love that we're watching columbo because it's fantastic <laughs> i love it um like you just you just opted out of all of the last of us dialogue to go watch columbo <laughs> i didn't really like last of us it was fine it just you know i like the the nick offerman episode was really good but I don't know. I, I've I'm I'm so zombied out at this point that it just wasn't really That's doing fair. anything for me. That's fair. I'll yell at you off off of the <laughs> recording. We don't need to subject the listeners to that. But yeah, he he has a, a hidden talent for being a real creep. Yeah, which is interesting because I do feel like in modern or more modern setting, he's he he's kind of played the straight man. Yeah, he was Uncle Ben in the in the yeah. the Garfield Spider Man movies. He's on Grace and Frankie. He's a lovable old gay man on that show. But yeah. when you go back, he just gets like real creepy. Creepy. He's 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 great at it though. He is. Yeah, he is. Man, I think the ending of this movie is <laughs> I I think it's I think it's really really great. I think there's mm-hmm. there's a few things about it that I really enjoy. The first is that I, I love the lead up to the assassination, but first of all, I don't believe for a second that he could uh, sleep the night in that balcony and then the <laughs> next day no one would check the balcony before they brought the senator in. I just don't believe yeah. that. But uh, taking that off the table, <clears throat> I love that he drops the what, drops the bullet when he's trying to load the gun just to add a little mm-hmm. bit of tension. And I love that he doesn't actually kill him because I feel mm-hmm. like that almost... The way that it plays out almost absolves him of it, it lets him accomplish his goal without actually having to do something horrible as horrible as murder. And the yes. way that they the way that they manage to figure out how to get that across by having Stilson in the face of gunfire grab an infant and yes. use it as a human shield <laughs> is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. And I cannot emphasize enough, even though I've already said it. That it is a real baby. Yes. <laughs> yes. Just like like dangling, the, screaming over a stage. The presence of mind you would need <laughs> to, in that situation, instead of like drop Hit down or run yep. away, to reach yep. over, grab a child, and then hold it up like your Rafiki in The Lion King, <laughs> hoping that it will take the bullets that are headed your way is is preposterous but oh i but i love God. it and it's it's so perfect because not only is it a, an amazing visual image um it does it preserves the two characters involved right like mm-hmm. it preserves johnny as a good person trying to do the right thing in that what he did was bad but the only person who really gets hurt because of it is himself and in the end he's saved countless lives and then on the other hand it forces stilson to reveal in public the sort of person he really is right and gives him kind of his his just desserts in the end and i love that it's you know there's a photographer there who takes all the pictures and then runs out the door and that's it (laughs) Like your political career is over. Yeah. Sometimes you're Howard Dean and you just scream weird 
and that's the end of your career. And other times you hold a baby up and use it as a human shield. Sometimes you're Jeb Bush and you just lean into your microphone and say, please clap. Can you, isn't it wild to think about how all the crazy shit that's going on and has not affected politicians these days? Howard Dean, he screamed weird once and that was the end of his his entire campaign. That was all it took. Al Gore said something along the lines of I invented the internet and we still make fun of him to this day. That is objectively funny though. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, people say they want an entrepreneur and a businessman in the office. I mean, what's better than inventing the internet, right? I mean, at at this point, if if he actually still wants to take credit for that, I'm also going to blame him for most of our social ills. That's fair. That's fair. Series of tubes. Um, But, uh, yeah, I, I, I love the end of this movie because it 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 would feel trite if it weren't so sad. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it it's almost like too pat of an ending where it's like the bad guy gets revealed for who he really is and the good guy gets to preserve his goodness by not hurting anybody. Like there's there's a worse version of the ending where he gets Stilson to reveal his real personality. And then he also gets, you know, and then Johnny lives and he gets Sarah in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the fact that he does get shot and, and, and he and he dies ultimately just kind of adds to the fact that, like, he was a good enough person that he was literally willing to give everything mm. to protect people he had never met and never would from the possibility of an unjustified death. Yeah. And it also And I think that's much more effective than just having him be like, "Oh no, actually he figured out a way to live and now he rides off into the sunset." Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it also um stays in line with the way that they depict his powers throughout the movie, which is that mm-hmm. every time he uses it to save someone, it costs him something. You know, he mm-hmm. uh <clears throat> he uh his mother dies shortly after he the first time he does it then when in when taking down the castle rock killer he gets shot he loses his Mm -hmm. job and he's just physically wasting away and eventually obviously he gets killed um and i think that's a part of it that is again it's another thing that they don't bring a lot of attention to but they it's there for you to to take it in as you're watching the movie that every time he uses this power it costs him something Mm -hmm. um and ultimately it costs him his life, but for, for a good reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> do you have any idea <clears throat> in my notes? Mm. It was, it's been a while since mm. I watched this. Uh, we had to postpone our show for a week cause there was, everyone's getting sick, but everyone was, sick. uh, I have in my notes, hot buttered Cheerios question mark. <laughs> and I can't remember why I wrote that down. I don't know either, but I even skimmed our uh, chat thread from the night we did watch this movie, and I saw that you said it in your in the chat. So you must have been really excited about it, whatever that was. I don't know if it's in the background <laughs> somewhere. Maybe it's on the back of a box, like a, a recipe or something. Or does somebody kind of say it in like a throwaway line? I mean, that's a great exclamation. Like you walk in to the gazebo and you find <laughs> the next victim Cheerios. of the Castle Rock Killer and you just exclaim, well, hot butter Cheerios. My note to myself was that the true lesson of this movie was never to follow a man into a gazebo. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, what, um, what, what do you think is creepier, 
following a man into a gazebo or going with a man to apparently an abandoned amusement park to ride a roller coaster once and then leave it. So I, I think the difference in these situations is Sarah had been dating Johnny long term. Mm-hmm. They were serious about each other. Mm-hmm. And that was the sweet date. Private private amusement park date? Sounds great to me. I was really I would, trying to decide whether or not it was meant to be a private date or if it was just like, we don't have the money to show people. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably more like we don't have the money to show people, but mm-hmm. I am choosing to say that it is a private amusement park date, mm-hmm. in which case, extremely romantic. Um, random dude who, as you walk by in the middle of the coldest winter in Ontario yells at you to smile and then tells you he wants to show you something in the gazebo fuck right off with that absolutely not they knew each other they were friends (laughs) if i were outside and i passed by you and you told me to give you a smile Mm. i would be like i'm calling caitlin and then i'm (laughs) calling the police no that's fair (laughs) if i walked by a gazebo and my mother was in the gazebo and said hey Come up here. I want to show you something. I would not trust her. (laughs) Especially not if she started with, why don't you give me a smile? Yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) mother just wants to see you happy. Aww. Um, The one thing in this movie is uh, they they kind of get into where the title comes from, but I guess it's different from the book. Uh, It says, Hmm. the movie doesn't explain the meaning of the phrase dead zone like the book does. Stephen King was going off old theories that people only use 10% of their brains and that we haven't Hmm. even unlocked the secrets of the other 90% and that when Johnny was in his coma, his brain had to create new pathways to get around the paralyzed part of his mind. So new pathways were created in the dead zone, which is the 90% Hmm. that people normally don't use. And this enabled him to develop powers of ESP and second sight. We know this theory is wrong. In fact, people use 100% of their brains, but the book came out in 1979. So, Yeah. Yeah, we can forgive him for that scientific error. Yeah. And I, I can't remember exactly what the ex- where the, they name dropped the title. It's, um, it's It has something to do with, there's like a, 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 in his visions, there's a, it's basically like a variable or something where it's a dead yeah. zone where he, he's not totally sure about all the specifics of, of the vision or something. Yeah, exa- it, it, it's, it's, it, yeah, it's that it's kind of like a, a blank spot in the midst of his visions that shows that there's a gap in between where something can be changed. Seems, seems to be the explanation they were going with. Yeah. 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 Sure. Why not? It's a cool title. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very cool title. Um I I still want to talk a little bit about how uncronenberg this movie is. Oh sure, yeah. Just I I I I you see a movie and it says it's it's directed by David Cronenberg and the lead actor is Christopher Walken and I feel like my bar for weirdness was set very high. Yes. And yet most of this is played fairly straight like yeah even though there is a person walking around with precognition powers it's very rooted in reality otherwise yeah my um i had a a teacher in college who 
was a big uh, genre movie fan, and he kind of introduced me to David Cronenberg a bit. And mm-hmm. as I was getting into Cronenberg movies, he said, you're going to come across movies that you're surprised are directed by him, but no matter how tame the rest of the movie might be, there's always one scene where David Cronenberg mm-hmm. comes out. And he he mentioned <laughs> the scene in Dead Ringers where they're connected by the tissue and then the woman mm-hmm. starts eating her way through the tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this one, I think the Cronenberg moment is the death of the Castle Rock killer because... Yes, Deputy Dodd. Yeah, because they don't just have him like slit his own wrists or hang himself. He wedges yeah. <laughs> his like surgical scissor murder weapon into mm-hmm. like a bureau and then mm-hmm. puts his hands on the back of his own head and then opens his mouth and rolls his eyes like he's just looked at the tape from the ring and then jams his own face onto the scissors and it's fucking awesome and it's like oh god and then they they show it when tom scarrett and and christopher walken find him and he's got the scissors stuck in his gaping mouth still yeah and his body he's covered in blood in like the bathtub and he's kind of like twitching yeah like he's he's dead, but he's not fully finished convulsing, and it's like oh. And the best wow. part about it is that it's such a strange setup that you don't even need to show the actual violence. Like if this was a Lucio Fulci no. movie, he would just show a close up of the blade slowly going to into his eyeball or something. Mm-hmm. But the, mm-hmm. the, all you need, the thing that makes you go, <gasps> is when he opens yeah. his mouth. Yeah, and, and starts to lean forward, yes. and you realize what he's doing, That's and you're like, the weird "Oh thing. no!" It's great. It's so good. <laughs> but also, oh god, I just had to highlight that. Also, it does it does have like low. I don't want to say low grade, but like I think the comb- the way that Walken is presented visually is pretty mm. weird for like the r- relative to the rest of the movie. Like everything else is pretty standard and pretty normal. But there's just something about he's not even dressed that weird. It's just that he's got his collar up like he's Dracula and he's got this big (laughs) shock of hair and Uh he's got this cane and he's Christopher Walken. And so that's like all you need to create. He he almost looks like a Tim Burton character. Yes. Which is why he did so great in Sleepy Hollow. That's true. Yeah. Bringing it full circle. With his famous line from that movie. Ah, <laughs> I love Sleepy Hollow. It's a great movie. You know, I was watching Beetlejuice recently. Oh, it's the best. And it occurred to me, I don't think all of us who grew up with Beetlejuice fully appreciate how fucking weird that movie is. <laughs> like, Oh, God, no. Of like, course we don't. The, the fact that that movie, A, got made... And B became as big of like a cultural hit as it did is mind blowing to me. What you mean? You mean you don't think most children's and, and young adult movies have a, a demonic entity that goes and hangs out at a strip club in a a, a model town? They should. <laughs> it's just so so weird. It's it's like i had i had that revelation when um after covid lockdowns a couple years ago we all got together at our in our friend's backyard one Mm -hmm. summer night to watch this movie um you i know you were there i don't know if you remember that i was yes 
but I, I remember sitting outside and I hadn't seen Beetlejuice in probably 15 years and watching it and being like, what? Like, A, this movie's amazing. It's, 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 it's damn near perfect, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But also, what were we all thinking? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when we made this, like, a linchpin of pop culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I, I was listening to the, uh, the Blank Check podcast, and they were talking about it and kind of highlighting the strangeness of it and how mm-hmm. it was extra strange when they turned it into a cartoon. And made Beetlejuice and Lydia into this like Calvin and Hobbes type yes. uh, couple of like best buddies. When in the movie, yeah. Beetlejuice is like a severely disgusting, severely horny ghost who tries to marry a 15 year old girl. Yes. Yes. It's very, it's very strange. It's a fantastic movie. <laughs> but this, this movie is also strange in, in a very it's just as strange, but in a totally different way. Good, good. Do you know what I excellent, mean? Excellent, excellent segue back onto the track. <laughs> no, I, I believe what I'm saying. I'm not just segueing. <laughs> because uh, it's just, it, it's such a strange combination of people and characters, mm-hmm. and, and, and the tone is really weird. I don't think it works quite as well as Beetlejuice, per se, but I do think it works. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of surprising when you take it all together, like... If if you if you read off a summary of of the plot of this movie and the basic premise, and then you add in Cronenberg and Christopher Walken and and some of the other pieces of it, it it doesn't sound like it makes sense together, but it but it actually hangs really well together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish um, between this and Beetlejuice, I wish they would let more weirdos make weird movies. I was just gonna say, give weirdos a chance. Yeah. Yeah, really do. And that's why we'll end up going to see Bo is Afraid. Yes, I do want to see that. Uh, I've heard, I've I've seen so many reviews that are like, this is the most awful thing I've ever seen. I actively want to sue Ari Aster for my money back. I'm like, oh, I, I need to see this movie if this is the way that people are responding to this thing. Wow. All right, let's do yeah. it. Absolutely. Um, I think that's going to do it for The Dead Zone. Uh, the only other thing to note is that Michael Kamen did the music for this. It's one of the few Cronenberg movies not scored by Howard Shore, frequent mm. collaborator. Um, it's got a, a pretty good sh- – Not, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a memorable score. Like I can't really think of it off the top of my head what it sounds like. Yeah. But I think it's it's fairly effective. Um, mm-hmm. Cinematography is pretty good. There's that great shot through the tunnel. Uh, is mm. really really cool. Yeah, that was. But cool. I feel like they used on posters or something for a while. But yeah, oh, I hope so. It's. Uh, <laughs> uh, how do you feel about the placement? It's number one fifteen on the list. Is it too high, too low, or should it be taken off the list completely? Well, it's it's really interesting because when we watch this, Greg and I have the conversation where he's usually the one who asks this question to me, which is, "Is this really a horror movie?" Mm. And and sometimes I'm able to kind of say to him, like, well, yeah, of course it is because of X, Y, and Z. And and this one was interesting where I was like, I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, f- I think if it was ever made in the, in the iteration that you mentioned earlier where it's about hunting down the serial killer almost like in full, then that would feel more like a horror movie to me than maybe what this felt like. Yeah. 
So I don't know. This this feels somewhat. I guess the thing that keeps it from fully being just like a, a sci-fi movie is they don't say definitively one way or the other, this is how you're having these visions. Yeah. Yeah. So it is left ambiguous of, is this a biological thing? Is it God? Is it some other sort of supernatural power? And I, I think that's kind of the only thing that keeps this as a horror movie for me. Yeah. I honestly, I actually think it's, it's probably more the, uh, more the the elements on the surface than the actual story that make it a horror film. For instance, mm-hmm. I think it's Stephen King. That's one tick in the horror <laughs> column. Yes. David Cronenberg. That's another tick in the horror column. Supernatural powers. Tick in the horror mm-hmm. column. And it has the word dead in the title. <laughs> I like honestly, I, I, I'm only kind of being facetious where like I feel like that's kind of doing the heavy lifting for most of the what wh- why it would mm-hmm. be considered horror because it's not really scary it's like existentially scary maybe but it's not right it's not like right. a it's it's not a terrifying film it's no pope's exorcist is what i'm saying <laughs> i can't wait to hear more about what you thought of that, oh, of that I loved one. It. um yeah but so i i would i would keep this on the list 115 feels kind of high to me. Yeah. Um, just again because I, I I think like you were like you were saying it's mostly the fact that there's dead in the title mm-hmm. that that's why it ends up on here and and in the Stephen King connection. But you know I I think if this was a a, a movie that was an original script not an, not a Stephen King adaptation and it was just called you know. Johnny's, uh, premonitions, Johnny's fun five years. Then it would, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if it would even be on this list. So I, I, I'm fine keeping it on here, but I don't know if I would give it 115. Yeah, 115. Looking at the list, it's a very strange part of the list because we've got <clears throat> 114 is Bone Tomahawk. 113 is Duel. Oh. 116 oh. is the orphanage. 117 is the 2021 Candyman. Then we've got Rare Exports and Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Uh-huh. Martin is at 121. <clears throat> uh, Blair Witch is 111. Let's, yeah, I don't know. I, it, I feel like it's getting into an area of the list where it's a lot of pretty high-end names mm-hmm. maybe like not first ballot hall of famers well some of them first ballot hall of famers like texas chainsaw mm. is 101 which is criminally high Jeez. um <clears throat> so yeah would i put it 150 yeah i probably would knock it down a few spaces if i was gonna i i don't want to say one f- i feel like all the movies where we're like yeah i would knock it down i feel yeah. like we've put them all at like 150 i think <laughs> yeah <laughs> our 150 <laughs> is like a 12-way tie at this point <laughs> Hey man, sometimes I say this should be in the one nineties. That's true. <laughs> I I would switch out. I'm just gonna say based on having not seen it, I'm gonna mm-hmm. switch out another Stephen King adaptation, 1922, which is at number mm. 123, and I would move I would move Dead Zone down to 123. That's a very yeah. that's a very uh, well. The Exorcist is at 126, so maybe I would move it further down. <sighs> anyway, why? What is this this is a flawed list. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, and we say it every episode, but I can't help. Every time you read off another one where you say, like, The Exorcist is at 126, and I'm like, that should be at 6. Yes. <laughs> yes. <sighs> anyway, but yes. Uh, that's going to do it, I think, for the Dead Zone. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I did want to say, I forgot to mention this, didn't come up naturally. My favorite, the one thing I remember from the book, it's uh, a fun little detail, is when he comes out of his coma in the book, Mm-hmm. The way that he realizes there's something wrong, because they do that little bit in the movie where they're not telling him what happened right away. Mm-hmm. The way that he realizes that there's something wrong in the book is that he notices that the doctor is using a felt tip pen, and those didn't <laughs> exist when he went into his coma. <gasps> oh, wow. It's a cool little detail. I always like that. Yeah, that that's actually great. I actually wish they had... I mean, I guess there's not a not a cinematic way to right. really portray that. Right. That's exciting, but I like that. Um, but yep, we are coming up on our 80th episode next time, which is a wild card episode. And uh, Amanda, oh would you like to tell fine folks what we're going to be watching? Uh, yes, I'm going to be tormenting all of you by making you watch The Grudge. Now, why do you say torment? <laughs> Because I remember people hating that movie. Interesting. Yeah, I I remember watching I remember seeing it at the time mm-hmm. and you know, right on the back of the ring. Mm-hmm. And I Which is why I want to make us right. do it. But I don't remember really what I thought of it. I'll I, I'm I'm very excited to rewatch it because it's been a really long time and I really loved this movie. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very curious to see how it's held up and uh, how we feel about it, having watched The Ring not too long ago. Yeah, I think, I don't know if I've seen it since it was in the theater, honestly. Well, get ready for a creepy-ass little kid living in your attic. Yeah, great trailer. I remember the trailer being really good. (laughs) And I mean, anyone who has listened to any episode of any of the podcasts I do well, no, there's another factor of this movie I'll be more interested in to talk about. But we'll get to that <laughs> next time when we talk about The Grudge. Leave it uh, on a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to help support the show, head over to patreon.com slash the Penske file. And uh, you can find the coverage Amanda and I have been doing this year going through uh, the video nasties list, watching some mm-hmm. delightfully gory and disgusting and controversial horror movies. Once a month. Last year we did the second string of Stephen King. Year before that we did the Friday the 13th series. So, you know, we're just trucking our way through middle of the road horror movies for your pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> I think I think this, this, I have been very, I've really liked all the video nasties we've watched. Like, it, I feel like they've yeah. been at the very least great conversations and great to talk about regardless of the quality of the movie so yes hopefully that continues for the rest of the year i i have high hopes i feel like after doing the friday the 13th year it's been uh, all uphill for me <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh thank you guys for listening thank you amanda for joining me oh thank you clay and we'll see you next time bye everyone <laughs>